Good morning, church. We're delighted to have you with us today as we gather, and I'm most excited to see, where is she? Ruby, Ruby, Ruby Vargo. Huh? Ruby, we love you. We have missed you, and she has had two vaccine shots, and so she's feeling frisky and free today. Frisky, frisky and free. She even gave me a big hug and a kiss, but we won't tell anybody that, so. Right, Ruby? Right? <laughs> also, I mentioned we are starting a new uh, uh, group called Beyond Our Congregation, which is an outreach group, and uh, so I hope you will look into that. It is going to be a way that you can uh, plug in and get involved um, in doing some outreach for the community and doing something beyond, obviously, our congregation. And Victoria Shirley is heading that group up. Where is Victoria? Yes, she is. So, Victoria, excited about that. So, you should, I know you all read your e-note daily. And that came out on Friday. So, beyond your congregation was in there, right, Victoria? Yes. So, very good. So, I want to start, we're going to talk about a story that you might know. It's from Luke chapter 15. It is the story of the prodigal son. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. So, uh, but I want to just mention that there are generally three ways to get things done in life. Do it yourself, ask someone else to do it, or ask your kids not to do it. Okay, that's just, that's just the truth right there. In the prodigal son story, there are two brothers in the story, right? There's an older one and a younger one. How many of you are the older sibling in your family? How many of you are older sibling? Okay. Can you see your hands? Yes. Okay. How many of you are the younger sibling? Let's see your hands. Okay. Okay. How many of you are the younger sibling, but you're more responsible than your older sibling? (laughs) If you kept your hands raised the whole time, you're probably the middle child, uh, and you get the boast of both worlds, okay? All right, yes, amen? So uh, are are we ready? We're going to get started. Are you ready? There was a man who had two sons. This is from Luke 15, chapter 11. And what you need to know about this father is this father loved both his boys very, very much, okay? From the moment they were born, this father loved his boys. And this father was wise, he was patient, he was loving, he was caring, and he was utterly devoted to both of his sons. But both of his sons broke his heart. And they did it in different ways. Now, in the story, there's a younger child. There's the younger sibling, right? Now, I'm a middle kid, okay? So I'm not the younger or older one. I'm a middle kid in a family of four, and I've always been fascinated by birth order dynamics. You ever read about birth order dynamics and who you tend to be? So Jesus is spot on here with what psychology says about birth order dynamics. There's a younger child, and as often as the case, the younger child is what? They are the free spirit, Right? They, they are the party waiting to happen, right? They love the limelight. They want to be the bride at every wedding and the funeral at every corpse, okay? They want to be there, right? Every corpse at every funeral. They light up the room. They want to be charming. But to tell you the truth, what, what are the younger siblings? They are spoiled, right? They got the TV and the cable in their room when you didn't. That's just a little personal tidbit for me, okay? <laughs> Greg got it, I didn't. They, they are entitled, they are kind of impulsive, and they're pretty good at getting what they want. They're the younger sibling, right? And 
And they, what do they do? They go, I'm the baby of the family. That's their mantra, right? And then there's the older boy, the firstborn. And the firstborn, typically, what do they do? They follow all the rules. They color inside the lines. They always make their bed. They always clean their room. They get the good grades. They're an overachiever. They're a perfectionist. But to tell you the truth, they're kind of bossy, right? And when, when they're around, the older brother always has a way of making the little brother feel small and inadequate. And the older son is always kind of judgmental as well, right? Right? And the, the older brother looks good from a distance, but the truth is when you get around that person, you don't want to be around them too long, right? Researchers just say that's the way they are. Now, you'll notice there is not a middle child in the story. Researchers say the middle children tend to be the healthiest and most well-adjusted of all the children in the family, which I happen to be. So there you go. (laughs) That's just a little dig at my family right now. So just a little dig. So anyhow. So one day, the younger son shatters the father's heart. He basically comes to his dad and says, hey, old man, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. I want my inheritance, and I want it now. Jesus said, not many days after that, the son gathered all he had, okay? So this is a family. We know this is a family with money. This is a family with status, with servants, with considerable resources. And so it takes some time for the father to gather up things, right? The father has to go liquidate some assets. He's got to sell some stocks. He's got to sell some cows. And while all that's going on, understand this, there's a whole village that is understanding and knows what is taking place. You ever lived in a small town? You ever notice how everybody knows your business? Well, everybody knows the son has told the father, you're as good as dead, I want my money and get out. And so here's what you have to know, the background about this story too. In the first century, in the first century in biblical times, there was a custom. If a Jewish boy takes his inheritance and then blows it and loses their inheritance among Gentiles, that would be you, okay? Then, and and if that Jewish boy dares to return home and tries to come, there's actually a ceremony invoked by the father and the village that indicates He was cut off from the family. So for several days, the father, while the father's gathering the assets, he keeps wondering, you know, will my boy come to his senses? Will he change his mind? Will I get him back? And of course, for the youngest son, the day cannot come soon enough. He wants to get that cashier's check, right? He's ready to go. He wants to, he, he walks out of that gate, he shakes the dust off his feet, and he cannot leave fast enough. How many of you could not wait to get out of your parents' house when you were a kid? I'm just raising my hand to show you I'm with you on that. And interesting, Jesus uses this language. Jesus says he goes to the far off country far off country and everything that looks good and shiny and self-indulgent and pleasurable he goes after and he spends his father's inheritance 
and he spends it, and he spends it, and he enjoys life. And you know what happens when you spend all your money? The money runs out. And then Jesus tells a story. He says, in the middle of his money running out, there was not just a famine, but a great famine occurs. Now, most of us have no idea what a famine would look like, particularly a great famine would look like in biblical times. Understand this. There's no, there's no COVID-19, 1.9 trillion stimulus check coming your way. Okay? There was no, there was no safety net. There's no social security. There's no unemployment. In the ancient world, famine meant, famine meant things like Murder, thievery, bodies rotting outside, children being sold into slavery, cannibalism. Those are the things that the listeners, when Jesus told the story, would have thought of when they heard great famine, not just, I'm a little hungry. Are you with me? Amen? All right. So all this is going on. And of course, the boy runs out of money. He's told his father, you're as good as dead. He does not want to go home because he knows, again, in the Jewish tradition, if he blows his inheritance among the Gentiles, which he has done, if he dared to try to go home, the entire community, the entire village, which knew what happened, would gather upon his return. And just as a symbol of how destructive he's been to his father and to the village and how much he's broken the relationships, the whole village would literally gather and they would have a ceremony and they would literally, they would take a pot and they would say, this was your relationship and that's what you've done to it. I just woke up half the congregation. (laughs) Which was the main reason I did that. But they wanted to say, this is, this is what, what you've done, son. You have broken your father's heart. You have broken the trust of the community. And you have squandered and broken everything. So this is what you're left with, son. And the son knows if he returns home, the community is going to gather and they're going to do that in front of him as a way of saying, hey, you're still cut off. And just so you know this, this ceremony is called the kazah, which is Hebrew for the cutting off. Everyone say that, kazah. That's what it means. It's you are cut off. And they had a ceremony, and this is what they did. And truthfully, if I were to ask some of you, there are some people maybe in this congregation or watching online who know what it feels like to be cut off, who knows what it feels like to be broken. The youngest son knows this is what's waiting for him if he returns home. And that's why he stays away even when there's famine. And of course, he even ends up, you know, feeding pigs, something a good Jewish person would never do because he doesn't want to go back to the gazelle. He does not want to face what is about to happen. But he finally cannot take it anymore. And so he says, I'm just going to brace myself and I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my father that I don't, I don't even belong to to be your son or deserve that, but I'll be your servant and I'll try to work my way back. But he doesn't anticipate something that Jesus says happens in the story. 
Because in this story, the father is out scanning the horizon every day, and he's looking, looking for his son. He's looking for him to come back. And I don't know if you know this, but have you ever been able to tell who someone is from a far off distance just by the way they walk? Now you think about this. This old man saw that young boy take his very first step. He knows that walk. And those steps belong to his son. He knows that boy. And Jesus says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him. And then it uses this verb. What does it say? He did what? He ran to his son. Now, when Jesus tells this type of story, some of the people that were gathered around listening to the story, some of them start to cry because he's really describing God. And the term that he uses in this original language for ran here is usually reserved for athletic contests. It's the father he scooted, he really ran, the patriarch of the family, a man of great dignity and authority, a man dressed in elaborate, ornate robes who usually walks in a slow, dignified manner, is running. The way to think about this is, when's the last time you've ever seen a president of the United States running? I didn't, I didn't mean for the discussion to get political. The question was, when have you seen a president any time in history running? I, can't, I, I don't remember. I try to think of a modern-day example. Anyone remember the old movie actor who's quite good named John Wayne? John Wayne? John Wayne was, uh, among a lot of things, he was famous for his walk. And you can actually Google the John Wayne walk. Uh, and I actually asked Jonathan to put this on the screens there. We're going to show you the John Wayne walk. When he was first in the movies, John Wayne did not like the way he looked, okay? And so for years, he practiced in front of a mirror to walk like a really cool, unthreatened, tough guy. So now, I've been practicing at home, and uh, <laughs> so this is how it goes. <laughs> pilgrim, uh -huh, pilgrim. No, not, not so much, but this is my hat. And I love this hat because it was given to me by Renee's parents, and it's from Curtin. It's a Catalina hat, homemade. And I love the insignia. It says, uh, if you find this hat, you'll know it's not yours because it says, like hell it's yours, this hat belongs to Reverend John Roberts. <laughs> True story right there. So there you go. Pilgrim. Pilgrim. Anyway, Renee told me not to do that part of the sermon. She said, she said you're going to look stupid. And I said, yeah. I said, I, I look stupid every week, so that's okay. So. But the point is, for a father to run would mean he'd have to gather up the hem of his robes. He'd have to gather them up, you know, and, and actually just run. And this, was, this is shameful. He's exposing his bare legs, something you didn't do as the patriarch of the family. This is humiliating, a father running. And, and, and this might be something a slave would do, but the patriarch of the family... Why? Why would he run? Because he cannot stop thinking about his broken son. And he wants to get to him. And he knows that, hey, if the village gets to my son first, it will mean kazah. They will do the ceremony. It will mean he was cut off. And if they get to him first, it will mean humiliation and brokenness and shame. So he's literally outrunning the village to get to his son because he wants to get to him first. 
right? Have you ever wanted to tell someone some news before someone else told them some news? Yeah. And he's thinking, I can't let this happen. I've got to get to him before anyone else. I've got to be the first one to get to my boy. And that father picks up his robes and he runs. And that father takes on the humiliation that should be his son and lets it fall on him. And this, of all the twists of this remarkable story, this was probably the most unexpected twist. We don't hear it because we don't understand that this is a father who's running towards a sinner. This is a father who runs towards his home. See, there's no judgment here, right? The presence of judgment almost always guarantees the absence of love. Think about it through the lens of marriage, a friendship, someone you work with. It is virtually impossible, I have found, to love someone and judge someone at the same time. I try to remember this rule. If I'm judging someone, I'm not loving them. You cannot judge someone and love someone at the same time. And the father's running to help a son, not to judge his son, but to love his son. The community wants Kazah. The community wants to run and judge him. The father wants to run and love him. You see the difference? And you ever notice the people that (laughs) judge almost never help and the people who help almost never judge? That's because judgment creates a line. Judgment creates a line that, you know, I'm better than you or I'm smarter than you or I'm more righteous than you than the person who needs no help. But help no such no line. It just knows how to help. And when Jesus taught on judgment, not only did he tell us not to judge, but, and he told us, you, you know, remove the mass of timber from your own eye before you tried to find the speck of dust in someone else's eye. But then he showed us the purpose of removing the speck from someone else's eye. It is to help them. Right? So the Christian purpose of stepping into someone's life and someone's world is not to judge them, but to help them. And if you're not trying to help, don't bother. You're going to make it worse. So this father does what no father would do, and, and it's because that father has never quit loving that boy. And that boy, no matter how far he went from home, never quit needing his father. And it's called, in our Bibles, it's called the parable of the prodigal son. But this, this could be the parable of the resentful older brother, but it really is the parable of the father who loves, the father who runs, It's the story of the running father. God is so filled with compassion for you that whatever distant land you have gone in, when you take one step towards him, he picks up his robe, he bares his legs, he humiliates himself, and he runs towards you. Not with judgment, but with love. This is the good news. This is where we get excited as a church. Somebody say amen. That's a cue. When I say that, that's your cue to say amen, okay? See, this is what God was doing in Jesus. Jesus is running to his rebellious children. So the father gets to the boy, and of course, the boy has got the prepared speech, right? I'm going to be your servant. Uh, I'll just work my way back into the family. You know, you could pay me. I can live outside. You know, I can sleep in a tent. And he's talking about all these ways that he's going to earn his way back in. And the father just says, hey, shut up. And he kisses him, and he says, quick, get get the best robe, which would have been his robe, the patriarchal robe that shows the, the one with the family, you know, emblem on it. And then get the best robe, put that on him. And then, of course, put the ring on his finger. And, of course, this isn't like the Aggie ring. This is like the family ring. This shows that you're in the family, okay? 
All right? No, no offense, because I'm getting ready to buy an Aggie ring for Jacob, all right? Dad, I want the good one. Of course you do. And then the sandals, put sandals on his feet. Now, this is something only a master would experience. A servant would come out and put shoes on the feet of the master. The son comes home expecting to be a servant and earn his way and earn his keep, and yet now he's being treated like a master, put sandals on his feet. And then the father says, go kill the fatted calf. For the family to have a fatted calf meant that they were saving it for something particular, a special occasion, a very special treat. The fatted calf would be not able not just to feed the family, but it would be for the entire village. See, right, this is for the whole village, right? Because you can't eat a whole calf, right? Some of you are like, oh, I don't know, I'm over there at Whataburger, you know. <laughs> no, you can't, you know, I mean, it's a fat calf's going to feed the whole village. It's going to be a week-long celebration. So the father says, let's get the fat calf, let's start the party. And the only thing I could compare this to is maybe if your family had a, bottle of vintage wine, right? Let's say you had a bottle that was worth $1,000. I don't know what that would taste like. I've never tasted $1,000 wine. I would imagine it would taste like heaven or something. And let's say your family has this $1,000 bottle of wine and your father is saving it for a big milestone like, you know, an anniversary or a big party or uh, the birth of a child or a grandchild. And, and you're storing this and you're waiting it for the most special of occasions but then your son comes home and tells you he's wrecked the family car. Do you reach for the bottle then? Or let's say your daughter comes home and she's flunked out of school and she's pregnant and she's given up on her education. Do you reach for the bottle? Perhaps you do. <laughs> All you alcoholics. I can hear some of you. You know, That's the time to do it, man. You got to start drinking then. <laughs> Golly. I didn't think about that till you started. I'm going to have to make a note in my notes here, yeah. So that's what the father does. The son comes home and he says, Dad, I, Dad, I messed up. And the father's like, kill the fatted calf. We call this the parable of the prodigal son. And understand, what does the word prodigal mean? The word prodigal actually means recklessly extravagant, having spent everything. And we call it the, the, the prodigal son because he was recklessly extravagant with his inheritance. He spent everything. But notice now who's being recklessly extravagant. Who's the one spending everything he has to show compassion, grace, and forgiveness and to welcome and celebrate the fact that his lost son is now home? It's the father, right? It's really the prodigal father. Even though his son has lost everything, now it's the father's turn to pour everything back into a son who's come home. So what this tells us is that acceptance is not contingent upon apology. There's nothing this younger son can do to earn it. The father just gives it. It's a gift. It's grace, right? And he brings out the best robe and he kills the fatted calf and there will be no kazaa. There, there will be no cutting off. There will be a party. We're going to have the fatted calf and I'm going to feed the village. But the story doesn't end there. Sometimes we want to end the story there. Sometimes there's more to the story. And a lot of times we talk about how we don't understand what God is like and what scriptures are like. But this is just a simple message about coming back, right? Because we're in this series about coming back to God. And this is a message about coming home to God. And maybe you've been in a far-off country. And the far-off country is not necessarily a geographical location. 
It can exist in your own heart. You can be a million miles away from people in your heart, right? Yeah. Maybe you've been a million miles away from God or you've been selfish or you've been less than what you intended to be or you've made bad choices or you've cheated or you've stolen. Maybe you've been involved in a lifestyle that would make everyone in this room, you know, would just make you blush if they knew. Well, you can come back by coming home. So often people think I've got to clean up my act first, right? I've got to butter up God with some good works or some good deeds or some kind of track record. But no, you just come home by the grace of the Father because he's the God that runs. Nobody earns their way home. You just come home. And this is where we say this is good news. Amen. A young girl grows up on a farm outside of Traverse City, Michigan, And her parents do not much care for the music she listens to, and they do not much care for the tattoos that she got or the clothes she wears or that nose ring. And she does not much care for her parents' church or her parents' values. They have another argument. She locks herself in a room, and the dad knocks on the door, and she screams, I hate you. And that night, at 3 in the morning, she decides to run away. And she ends up in Detroit, where she's much lonelier than she anticipated, She meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He gives her a ride and buys her lunch, and he gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. And the man with the big car, she calls him boss. He teaches her a few things about what men like. It's a side of life she never knew. And she has parties and glitz and glamour and money and pills. And so she enjoys it. And she goes to work for him. And things are good for a while, and life is good. But after a few months, she gets sick. And it amazes her how quickly the boss man that she used to love turns pretty mean. Before she knows that she's out on the street without any support or any money or no place to live or no car or no money, and she's all alone. And She still turns a couple tricks at night, but all the money now goes to support a drug habit. And somehow, those drugs don't make her feel as good as they used to. And she begins to feel less and less like a a woman and more and more like a little girl who's lost and scared. And her pockets are empty and her stomach is hungry and her eyes are filled with tears. And she begins to whimper and say, God, why did I leave? My dog back home eats better than I do. And she knows more than anything she wants to go home. So finally she gets up the courage to call her dad and three straight calls go to dad's voicemail and she finally leaves a message she says dad it's me I was wondering about coming home I'm catching a bus I'll be there about midnight tomorrow if you're not there at the bus stop I'll just get back on the bus and keep going so seven hour bus ride home she's preparing the speech over and over again I know it was my fault dad please forgive me she hasn't apologized for anything in years and she comes to the bus stop in Traverse City Bus station and the driver announces, 15 minutes, 15 minutes stop, 15 minutes to decide your life. She looks in her little compact mirror and tries to brush her hair, and she sees the needle marks on her arms, and she wonders if her dad will notice. She's imagined many different scenes, but none of them prepares her for what she sees because inside that little bus station and concrete walls and plastic chairs, there in a bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and cousins and grandmother and one dog. And they're all wearing goofy party hats and 
blowing noisemakers, and they cheer for her as if she's a hero coming home from the war. And then there's a giant hand-painted sign taped across the entire wall of the terminal that reads, Welcome Home. And out of the crowd of the well-wishers standing in the very front is her dad, and she stares at him with tears in her eyes, and she, she came and looks at him. She looks down at the ground. She says, Dad, I'm so sorry. And she, she begins her speech, and he just says, be quiet. We got no time for any of those stories. We, we got a big party waiting for you at home. Let's go. So Jesus tells this story, and if you think uh, of the father in this story, and, and you think, uh, think of a father that's 100 times better, a thousand times wiser, and a million times more loving, and you get just a little echo of what God is like towards you and how much God loves you. This is a father who says, you can come home. You can do that today. Maybe you're like the younger brother, and you've made choices that have messed up, and you've goofed up, and you're so ashamed, and you're guilt-ridden. You can come home. Amen? This is good news. But remember, this is a man who had two sons. Jesus goes on to tell us, meanwhile, there was an older son in the field. And when he came here near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants. He said, hey, what the heck's going on? And one of the servants says, well, your brother's come home. And your dad has killed the fatted calf. He's broke open the $1,000 bottle of wine. And the older brother gets angry. And he refuses to come in. And he says, I'm not going to that party. And so his father went out and pleaded with him and said, what's going on? And the older brother says, this, this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours blew your inheritance on wild living and prostitutes. Now, we don't know that, but the older brother's making up stuff. You know, that's how they do it. And, and yet, here you are, you welcome him with a party, you kill the fatted calf, you never even got a goat from me. All these years I've worked for you, Dad. All these years I've followed all the rules. But this son of yours squandered your wealth on prostitutes, and you killed a fatted calf for him. The older son is full of judgment. Judgment is always grounded in arrogance. That's because a judgmental person almost always carries with them a sense of condensation. I would never get myself into that situation, Dad. That, that younger son should be as good as I am. Or poor, stupid you, right? Judgment always says, I'm better than you. I know more than you, and I'm superior to you. No wonder people run from judgment. Very few people get judged into life change, right? I judge them right into change. Most people get loved into it. Do you think the older brother ever prayed for his younger brother? You think you ever stop and pray for the people you judge, for the people you hate, for the people you dislike? You know, the people you hope are not your roommates in heaven? What? How did you get in here? There's a connection between judgment and prayer. Judging someone and praying for someone are pretty much mutually exclusive. You can't pray for someone you judge because you're actually not for them. Sure, you can pray about them, right? God help them. But again, your prayer won't be grounded in humility. It might be grounded in arrogance or anger 
or superiority, but not grounded in humility and love. And I don't think you ever truly pray for someone you judge. And conversely, if you want to stop judging someone, pray for them. It's impossible to judge someone and pray for them at the time. So the father says back to the son, my son, you're all, everything I have is already yours. But we had to celebrate because this brother of yours, he was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Now everybody's listening on the edge of their seats. And remember, these are religious people Jesus is telling this story to. And, and will the older brother come back into the party? We are not told. It's a cliffhanger. It's to be continued. The younger son's disgraced his father by wild living. The older brother has disgraced his father by refusing to come to a party and joining the village and celebrating that the son's come home. But remember, this is the father's party, right? He's hosting the party. But the older son's refused to come home, and so now he's disgracing the father. And the father comes out to retrieve him, says, come back to the party. And the older son is arrogant with the father and speaks to him in a way that if I had ever talked to my father this way, I wouldn't be up here preaching right now. I'd be dead. All these years, dad, I've slaved for you. I've done everything you commanded me to do. I have obeyed you completely, yet never once did you offer me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Now, he uses the term goat versus fatted calf because a goat in those times was worth about one-tenth of what a fatted calf was. So you didn't even, you know, like, you didn't give me a piece of chicken. I, you know, you gave him steak. I don't know if you noticed, but steak's more expensive than chicken. The older brother is not only upset, he's being sarcastic and speaking to his father in very disrespectful, demeaning ways. Look, you never even acknowledge any of my righteousness or my goodness. And this is the way he responds to the older son. The father says, hey, look, you've always been with me. Everything I have is already yours. So we have two sons that are lost here. The younger son was lost because of bad behavior and immorality. He lost everything. But the older son is lost too because he's separated by his good behavior, by his self-righteousness, and by his moral fortitude. He thinks somehow he deserves grace and more favor and more love than the older brother. The older brother is lost in his own self-righteousness. They both both sons think the father's keeping track, like there's some sort of scorecard or report card. And the younger son thinks he's flunking out. He's going to get expelled from the family. And the older son thinks he's making straight A's and he deserves a reward or some sort of acknowledgement. And they both think the way the father thinks about them is based upon behavior and their actions, what they do and what they've done. Essentially, what the father says is, wait, do you think all this time your good deeds was earning you something? Did you not know that everything was already yours? You misunderstood me as much as the younger son. You've been lost in your own goodness. And Jesus tells this parable, remember, it's got all kinds of edges. Who's the audience? It's provocative. It's shocking. And here's the question I want to ask you. Which son are you? Where do you find yourself in this story? Are you the one that's always been good, played by the rules, colored inside the lines? You never strayed from the path. God owes you. 
Or maybe you're the prodigal. You strayed and you've come back and you strayed and you've come back and you're ashamed of what you've done. And you hope nobody finds out all the things you've done. Oftentimes we read this parable and we assume that we're all the younger son. But here's what I want to tell you and you're not going to like this part of the sermon. Oftentimes, the longer you're in the church (laughs) and the more established you are in the church, the more likely you are to become like the older brother. Why is Pastor John spending time on those new people? Don't they know we have paid the bills? We support this church. He should be spending time with us. Look at the way they're living their lives. Look at how they're dressed. I remember one time I started this service. It was at St. John's here in Corpus. It was a new life celebration, and it was a crazy service. It was wild. It was like, in fact, Donald played in the band. Remember that? It was a crazy service. It was a night service. It was was just crazy because Donald was in it, right? Yes. And and, um, there was a lot of people that showed up, tattoos and tank tops and flip-flops and so, and it was actually, by all means, you know, reaching people. And um, there was this older lady that showed up at the church council. This is not in my notes. She showed up at the church council. She stood up, you know, the admin council. She goes, I want you to know I came to that. And this is a true story. The very first service, the music was so loud, she ran out screaming with her hands over her ears. So whenever Renee says to me, if she's not part of the service, she says, how did it go? I said, no one ran out screaming. That has become the sort of the litmus test for my services from then on. So she stood up in front of the church council. She said, I want you to know I went to that Sunday night service and I saw people with tattoos and I saw people with nose rings and people wore, someone wore a, a tank top, a tank top. And there was a woman with a tank top with no bra on. Oh, my God. Mini skirts. Oh, my God. She says, it looked like Pastor John had dredged the ditches of Corpus Christi to fill up our sanctuary. I said, thank you for the biggest compliment I've ever received in my ministry. I didn't mean it that way. Well, there's a bunch of prodigal sons in church that night, but she was the elder brother. She didn't even see it because she was so full of goodness and the way she dressed, the way she looked. You understand what I'm saying, church? So it's funny. I mean, if (laughs) if you think God doesn't care about what you're going through life, and you think God's distant and aloof and impersonal, and you think I can never have a relationship with God, um, and I should just stay off of the far-off country, that's a mistake. And if you think God is keeping track of your good deeds and he's putting a star on your sticker chart every time you go to church, uh, God's not doing that. I'm doing that, okay? God doesn't do that. I do that. But if you think God's looking at you and smiling every time you put an offering in the basket, you know, and put an offering in the, that plate, God's not keeping track of that. I'm keeping track of it. (laughs) You dread the ditches of Corpus Christi. Never forget that lady. I won't mention her name. Some of you might know her. 
If you think God owes you something and you deserve more health and wealth and prosperity, that's wrong too. But at an early age, we've all come to understand that our behavior matters to others. The way we behave affects other people, the way they think about us. We know that good behavior leads to relational success, right? Good behavior means you're invited, you're approved, and you're accepted, whereas bad behavior means you're rejected and you're isolated. And this starts at a very early age. You're on the playground. Will the other kids like me? Will I get picked for the team? Am I not going to get picked for the team? Will they accept me? And then we go to school, and we learn very quickly that if you get good grades, you get a good pat on the back, and you get affirmation, and your parents are proud of you. And then if you get good grades and the right scores, then you get into the right schools, and then you get off of the right jobs, and then you get the right job, then you have the right money, and you have a nice life and a nice career, and God's blessing me, and oh, that's how it goes. And we realize that we're a culture that is built on performance and approval. And so it's so easy for us to take that and project it onto God and say, well, if I behave the right way, God will love me and he will accept me and God will bless me. And if I behave the wrong way, he'll reject me and he won't be proud of me and God will be mad at me. Because we have cultures that have established, you're cut off. We take the way the world works in the economy of the world and we put it on God. And, but what if God works in a different way? This is what Jesus was telling them. What if the value system is all upside down? What if the way God thinks about you has nothing to do with what you do? What if the way God thinks about you has nothing to do with your behavior? Some of you are like, woohoo, crack open the bottle of wine. I'm going to tell you what God thinks about you. Because God loves you and God has given everything and God has given his only son to love you. And if you receive him, you'll be invited into his home and his party. All you have to do is receive and accept that love. And there's nothing you can do to earn it. <laughs> nothing you can do to lose this love. Because God doesn't try to love us. Right? God's not going, well, I'm sure try to love joy, but it's hard. Dave, quit shaking your head Yes. God is love, 1 John 4, 7. That's who he is. And our only response is to accept it and welcome it into our lives. I'm not sure I've communicated this well, but I'm almost done, so I know you're excited about that. Drake, the teaches of Corpus Christi. <laughs> I was so excited when she said that to me. I knew I was reaching people. When you get accused of reaching the prodigal sons, that's a good thing as a pastor. You know, even human fathers want their children to know that they love them. And when my kids were little, I used to tuck them in bed and I'd say a little prayer with them. I'd do what my mom would do. I would say a little prayer with them. And then I would say to my kids, you know, remember, I don't love you this much. I don't love you this much. I don't love you this much. I love you this much. I would do that with my kids. And so one time in New Braunfels, we, we had a, a pool in our backyard and Renee and Jacob and I are at the pool. And Zach went inside to get a popsicle. And um, he was being a little ornery with us, being a little prodigal son-like, and we were not getting along with him really well. And I was, you know, scolding him and I told him he couldn't go get a popsicle. And he said, I'm going to get a popsicle. He didn't care 
the wrath of God was coming. He was going to get that popsicle. He went inside and he got that popsicle and I was yelling at him from on the porch. I said, get back out here. Do not get a popsicle. Your mom did not say you could have a popsicle. Say it the Lord. <laughs> and he opened up the freezer and he got himself a popsicle. And he came outside and he goes, I'm locking you out. And he turned the knob on the door and he shut the door and he locked that door. And I said, you better not have locked that door, son, because I'm going to whoop your little holy booty. But he locked the door and he thought it was funny. He's out there and laughing, ate his little popsicle. And I tried to pick the lock and I got a credit card and I'm not a very good thief and I could not get in my own house. And Renee's like, well, you're going to have to call locksmith. You can't break the window. And I said, I'm going to break the window. You can't break the window. That's more expensive. Call locksmith. So we had to call locksmith. So the locksmith comes out and 150 bucks later, we're back in our house. Zach's sitting there with popsicle all over his lips, staring at me. And I start lecturing him and I start yelling at him and I start tearing into him because he should not have blocked the door. And he looks up at me, you know, he's like five. And I'm just reaming him. And Renee's like hitting me like, that's enough. I'm like, well, you paying for the lock? And he says to me, I'll never forget it. He looks at me after I've, I've been lecturing him for 10 minutes. And he goes, Daddy, do you still love me this much? I said, no, this much. <laughs> True. That's the way human love is, right? Sometimes it's this much. Sometimes it's but if you want to know how much God loves you, and I tell the kids this in chapel time all the, all the time every Thursday, we point to the giant plus sign over here. That's what they call it. What's that plus sign doing in here? It's a cross. And because if you want to know how much God loves you, you remember Jesus stretched out his hands and said, I love you this much. This much. Because on the cross in ways that we can't even understand, Jesus becomes, as he's nailed in his hands and his feet with his side pierced, he becomes kazah, he becomes cut off which is why he quotes Psalm 22 from the cross and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels cut off and he becomes broken. Why? So you could have wholeness, so you could know how much God loves you, so you could be forgiven, so you could know that God only sees you through the lens of Jesus as forgiven, even when you go get a popsicle. So whether you're the prodigal or whether you're the elder brother, you are invited, you can come back by coming home. So let's pray. God of grace, we give thanks for this time to come together and remember the Father's love and remember what that's about. Help us, God, to know whether we're the prodigal or the elder brother, we're invited. And it's not based upon anything we've done, nothing we can do to deserve your love or earn your love. It's just grace. It's the name of this church. It's unearned favor. It's unmerited love. And so, Lord, we give thanks for that. And we remember, Lord, as we are going to share in the covenant of communion and Eucharist, remember that Jesus, on the night that he gave himself up for us, he took bread, he broke that bread and gave it to the disciples and said, take this, this is my body, which was broken and will be broken for you. So we take this bread now, Lord, and we break this bread.
and remembering that Christ was broken for us so that we might have wholeness. And then on that same night, Jesus took the cup and again he returned thanks to you and said to the disciples, drink from this, all of you, for this is the cup of forgiveness. This is the cup that says you can always come back home. This is the cup that says no matter who you are, prodigal, older brother, you can always come back home to God because the cup of mercy and forgiveness never runs out. So take and drink. So Father, we ask that you bless these elements of your body and your blood. May they be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we might live in this world as the body of Christ. And Father, help us to remember that Jesus loves us this much and that love never goes away. It's not based upon anything we've done or anything we have done or what we have failed to do, that we can come home and we can come back to you by coming home and that you invite us to you're a God who runs, not to be the village that judges us and cuts us off, but to be the God who forgives us and loves us and welcomes us. So Father, I pray that everyone will know that they're welcome, that you love them, and that you don't try to love us, you just are love. Help us to receive that love and help us to give that love and help us to walk out of here not as people who judge based on how people look on their outer appearance or whether they've squandered their inheritance, but just people who love. People who say, hey, there's a big party and God's the host. He wants you there. And when we get surrounded by that love and filled with that love, then the change happens. Then the transformation happens. So Father, help us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, the one who taught us as we say now together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Kingdom come. Thy will be done. Earth is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. This kingdom. Thank you so much for joining us at Grace Presbyterian Church. We hope and we trust that this message was a blessing and gave you much encouragement as you face today. At Grace Presbyterian Church, we are a church family that welcomes everyone who welcomes everyone. And we would love to welcome you. So please join us either online or in person. You'll find a community that loves God and loves each other. And we are blessed by other people joining us. So please come and join us at Grace Presbyterian Church.